Good morning. Uh, welcome and welcome to our online audience that's watching from around the world. We appreciate you joining us this morning. Uh, a couple of announcements before we get started. I wanted to uh, remind everybody that this past Thursday evening, 7 o'clock, we went live with our first television satellite uh, program at heartwiseministries.org to start with. Um, we will uh, be adding new television networks as the year unfolds. The program is called Heart of Health. I was the first guest. Dr. Markham is the host, and I will be a regular guest appearing every six weeks or so and um, hosting the show when Dr. Markham's out of town. But it's a live call-in format, the way this show is designed. And so I want to invite you all to set your calendars for Thursday nights, Thursday night, 7 p.m., to go to heartwiseministries.org. You can watch it online live and then call in because it's a call-in uh, program to ask questions to whoever the doctor, physician, uh, guest is. I think they're going to have a nutritionist coming up this next week. Um, and you can call in and ask all types of nutrition questions uh, on Thursday this week. But the point is, the more phone calls they get, even if you don't get through, if you get a busy signal, the computer registers that, and the more phone calls, and the higher the ratings, and the higher the ratings, then it helps expand to other networks and so forth. So make that part of your weekly mission to call in on that show. Um, and then we have uh, the DVDs. I just want to let you know the, 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 your support for the class is not only helping funding the television program, but the DVDs. We've sent well over 1,000, maybe 1,500 of these all over the world, and it's continuing to get good response from those. All right, let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We pray that your spirit will be with us to enlighten our minds, that we can come to know uh, your methods, your principles, and the way your kingdom operates. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are starting a new quarter uh, with the quarterly 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And I thought it might be good to give a little history of Thessalonica. Uh, The city of Thessalonica flourished for hundreds of years, partly because of its location, which was on the uh, port city on the Aegean Sea. Uh, It used to be called um, Therma because of the Therma. Can you hear that word? Thermal, Therma. It used to have hot springs or had hot springs there. And for the thermal hot springs, it used to be called Therma. It was changed to Thessalonica, which is the wife of Alexander's general, Cassander in 315 B.C. And this city was a major port uh, for trade, so it had a lot of activity coming through there. And it also um, was on the Ignatian Way, which was the main road from Rome to the Orient via Byzantium. Byzantium is the ancient name of uh, Istanbul. That's right, Istanbul. And so they had a lot of traffic coming through this area, many, many cultures. It was, it was uh, a city in uh, Greece. It was, um, at the time of of the New Testament, it had about 200,000 people in population in in the city. And um, if you think about that, that's that's about the size of Chattanooga. Chattanooga, I think, in the city proper has about 165,000, 175,000 people in the the city limits of Chattanooga. And so it's a pretty good-sized city. most of the inhabitants were Greek, but there were a lot of Romans, Orients, and uh, Jews. Uh, wherever there was heavy business at that time, there was always Jewish businessmen around conducting business. It says in the uh, and I've got all this documented for you in the in the notes. Um, the pagan uh, religion of Greek at the time um, had a lot of immorality and uh, sensuality in its uh, in its culture, uh, which was uh, part of the culture in which the gospel is trying to be presented in. This uh, era, the Romans conquered uh, this city in 168 BC and divided Macedonia into four districts. And 
Thessalonica uh, was the capital uh, of these. In 1546 uh, BC, Romans organized Macedonia and made this the capital of the new province. And in 42 BC, this city received the status of a free city from Antony and Octavian. Octavian later, later became Caesar Augustus. The reason is because the Thessalonians supported um, uh, Anthony and Octavian against their adversaries, Brutus and Cassius. And so in that, uh, in that attempted coup, uh, that support led to a free city. The Romans then ruled from the city with a loose hand. Even though the Roman proconsul or governor was in the city, there were no Roman soldiers or troops garrisoned in the city. And so they were allowed to govern themselves. In World War I, the Allies based soldiers here, and in World War II, the Nazis extracted 60,000 Jews and sent them away for execution from the city. And today, the city has 300,000 inhabitants. Um, Luke uh, gives a detailed account of Paul's ministry uh, to Thessalonia, and... um, he, where he taught uh, for Sabbaths uh, there. Uh, he also uh, received offerings from the Philippians to help support. Uh, he was forced from the city, uh, and we're going to talk about why he was forced from the city and what happened to disrupt his ministry there. Eventually, he went, to, went on to Athens. So, any questions about the history of the city? Does it have a different name today? It depends on who you talk to. Yes, it can go by the name Salonika. Somebody read for us the memory text starting our lesson today. It's in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God which is at work in you who believe. I want you to think about this. If you notice what's saying here, that here these people are, receive this message from these guys, uh, not as the word of man, but as the word of God. And I, I got to thinking, how do you think the Thessalonians knew this was the word of God? Here these guys come, Jews from Palestine, show up in the city, start presenting a message, and Paul says they accepted this as the word of God. Did they check with the Old Testament scriptures? Were there miraculous signs and wonders? Were they convicted by their heart and a a warm fuzzy inside? Was it sensible and it made sense? Was it more reasonable than other religions of the day that they were struggling with? I mean, it was a pretty radical teaching, wasn't it? What was Paul telling them? More than that, God, who rules the universe and creates everything, decided to become a human being baby raised in Palestine, went around doing good, was brutally abused by man, crucified on the cross, laid in the tomb for three days, rose and rules in heaven again. That's a message from God. You don't find that a little amazing, that they just jumped on that? I imagine the way Paul lived had a lot to do with whether they believed him or not. Russell. I think it's fair to suggest that the Holy Spirit was working on the hearts of these people long before Paul showed up. They were they were they had a hunger and a thirst for truth or for something better than what they had at that time. And when when it was presented, you know, the, the the seed had already been planted and it was watered and it grew. Oh, I like what you're saying. So the Holy Spirit was working to create a should we say a maybe dissatisfaction with falsehood. 
They weren't at peace with what they were taught. They, they didn't necessarily know the truth, but they knew what they had really wasn't satisfying. So there wasn't maybe a hungering, a thirsting, as we use that language sometimes. Um, consider this. What were, what were the gods of the Greeks like? Describe for me the, the gods of the Greeks. Angry, vengeful. Angry, she said, vengeful. Can you name any? Apollo. Apollo. Zeus. Zeus. Pardon? Diana. Diana. Okay, and, and, and if you think about these gods, were these gods, did they re- reveal, in any of the Greek gods, do you see the, the character of Jesus revealed in those gods? No. What character do you see revealed in the Greek gods? Petty? Yeah. Arbitrary? Childish even? Yes. Well, the pagan gods in general were just a reflection of the sinful human condition. So the pagan gods reflected petty human traits and characters. Do you think that when um, Paul presented Jesus, this concept of a god who, who was selfless, who, who instead of demanding sacrifice from human beings to, to work on them, here's a god who was sacrificing himself for us. Wait, wait, I've never heard anything like this. How can this be? You mean we don't have to, to earn favor? We don't have to bring sacrifice? We don't have to... That this God is actually reaching out to, because we have a need? You think this was striking a chord, that, something unheard of, that was like, wow, this, this kind of God, I, I could like this God. Um, this is from Rediscovering the Scandal of the Cross by Green and Baker from University Press. It says, Among the Greeks and Romans... Then, sacrifices were offered in recognition of the supremacy of the gods and in exchange for their favors. Walter Burkett refers to this function of worship as crisis management. Although he is aware that in ancient Greece, sacrificial rites fostered a fellowship among the worshipers who share in the sacrificial meal, he also recognizes that adversity teaches prayer. And this is a quote from from Walter Burkett. Um, It says, All the great crises that leave men helpless, even when united uh, may, be interpreted as caused by the wrath of the stronger ones, gods and heroes. Bad harvests and infertility of the soil, diseases of men and cattle, barrenness of women and abnormal offspring, civil wars and defeat by a foreign foreign army. Conversely, if these powers are appeased, all kinds of blessings must return. Rich harvest, healthy children, civil order. The traditional means to secure the one and and prevent the other are sacrifice and prayer, especially in the form of vows. And then um, Green and Baker go on. This does not mean that the Gentiles among whom Paul proclaimed and whom he wrote concerning the cross of Christ were well prepared culturally for this message. It does mean, however, that Paul's Gentile audiences were likely to read the story of the cross with a certain guiding presuppositions. Chief among these would be the arbitrariness of the gods, whose anger must be turned away and whose benefit must be sought. It is puzzling. This is Green and Baker now. After they document this, this pagan con- god construct that we've talked about so many times, these, these arbitrary gods who, who will punish if you don't do what they want, if you don't appease them with offerings, but if you do, you can get good stuff out of them. After, after describing this, he, he, this is what they say. It is puzzling that many of our American readers share these same assumptions about God. In spite of the fact that neither the scriptures of Israel nor Paul himself support this view. Isn't that fascinating? Because I absolutely, I mean, have you not heard this God construct taught in America that if you don't, you know, 
God is either appeased by the blood of his son, or Mary and all the saints are pleading to, to hold back his anger and wrath. If you don't do what he says, he's going to reach out from heaven with fire or lightning bolts and, and get you. You know, the whole lightning bolt fire thing comes from Zeus. Send lightning bolts down if you don't do what he says. Thoughts about this? So here Paul comes with a message in the context of these, these, the mindset. Gods are angry. Gods are upset. If you don't do what they want, they'll punish. But if we work hard, if we bring them good payments, if we make vows, then we can get them on our side to fight for us. Watch out for us. Give us blessings. And Paul comes and says, no, no. God is like Jesus. And he describes this selfless, loving, caring being who, who is constantly seeking our good all the time. Does any wonder it had some traction? Sure. And that's where uh, verse 5 and 6 that gets into what you've just... Go ahead and share verse 5 and 6. Verse 5 and 6 says, For for neither at any time do we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness, nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as, as apostles of Christ. So it, it summarizes what, what... It doesn't summarize it, but it precedes what you said and describes it, that they did come and they had a different character and they, they went about with them kind of proving themselves as, as men of Christ and, and living with them and, and showing that. Did y'all hear what he said? He's saying, so Paul and, Paul and Silas come to town and they don't act like the pagan priests. When a pagan priest would come, what would the pagan priest do? With pomp, circumstance, expectation, uh, want money to be given, put up with the nicest stuff, demand uh, various service, um, you know. Uh, but Paul and Silas come and they begin serving. They won't take money for themselves. They won't even take bread. They 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 uh, do the nets and so forth to make money to provide their own way because they want to be service to the people rather than to be served by the people. And people are going, whoa, this isn't how religion works. We're supposed to, this is something weird here. Things are turned upside down. And I think you're exactly right. Their, their ministry to the community was different than what you typically see. Typically, the priests and their... Um, various uh, minions would be served by the community rather than served to the community. So again, it's it's a great contrast. Um, in the last paragraph, it says, um, sentence, but our confidence in God is even more solidly grounded when it is based in the clear teaching of his word. You see, the lessons tried to make the case that Paul gave them the word, they believed the word, and that's why they had confidence. And so we have confidence when we read the Word and we just have confidence in the Word. Well, if that was really true, if our confidence is grounded in the in based in the clear teaching of His Word, why are there so many Christian denominations and so many disagreements even within the same denomination if the Word is so clear? Is it because the Word is vulnerable to cultural interpretation, the lens of culture in which the word is read, affects what the persons get out of the word. The word is vulnerable to being bent or warped based on the lens one reads the words through, and that lens is affected by the culture of the time. Is that possible? Well, if if you do a little study, you'll find this is exactly what's happened. Most of the atonement models that we have have been warped or created based on the lens and the construct of the mindset of the people when they go to the word. 
And is this magnified, this warping of the word magnified because of a teaching within Christianity that suggests you can only study the word in isolation, divorced from all other evidence of life and science and nature. And when you dissect the word out away from the reality of God's universe and study it in isolation without the balancing hand of the laws of nature, without the balancing hand of reason and experience, we just study it internal to itself with the human mind and lens that we bring, then it seems to me it's really vulnerable to all types of misinterpretation. It gets even worse. If there are theories out there, you can only study one version of the word. I mean, yeah. It has only been, you know, only a certain translation of the word is accurate. Yeah, and it, it, if, if anybody that has any type of thinking at all thinks about that. And which version is that, by the way? Oh, it's King the, James. The Hebrew, right? Yeah. The Greek, that, right? Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, no, no. It's King James. <laughs> the King, King James. James. Wrote it. Now, think about that. <laughs> Just think about that. Did the Bible come down from heaven in King James English? This is the translation from Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Yet, somehow, people do have this idea that only the King James Bible uh, is, is uh, accurate and reliable. Like they speak King James English in heaven. <laughs> I want to suggest a new method in our study of God, uh, and I call it the integrative evidence-based approach. The integrative evidence-based approach that requires the integration and harmony of three threads of evidence. Scripture, laws of nature and science, and your experience. All three have to be harmonized. If there's disharmony then some, amongst those three threads, then in some place, it could be your experience, it could be your understanding of science, it could be your understanding of some place there's misunderstanding. Because proper understanding will bring harmony to all three. This is my suggestion. When you study scripture divorced from science and nature, you get all types of distortions about God and who he is, how he works. In fact, somebody just came up to me and said, but there was a, right before class, that, that they just read a study that was done on cultures that teach a belief in God who is forgiving versus cultures who teach a, a, a very strong hell message and punishing God view. And then they looked at crime rates in those cultures, and they, the, the, the early data is suggesting that cultures with a forgiving God have higher crime than cultures with a punishing, hell, hell torturing God. Now, Anybody have an idea why that is? Because, I'm going to tell you, it's because of the lens of the law they look through. They are reading scripture, divorced from the laws of nature, and so when you, when you consider that God's law is an imposed law, not a natural law, then the problem with breaking an imposed law, imposed law would be like the speed limit. That's an imposed law. If you know that, you, that uh, in Collegedale, this is funny, everybody laugh, they never give tickets. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Okay? If you know, though, there's speed limits posted, but in Collegedale, 100% of the time, everybody is always forgiven. Nobody's ever given a ticket, ever. Would that lead to more people driving the speed limit or more people speeding? Okay? When the law is imposed, arbitrary, and you believe in a forgiving God... There's no consequence to doing evil, so just do evil because he's going to forgive everybody. So the, so the problem isn't in believing in a forgiving God. The problem is misunderstanding God's law as imposed or arbitrary, and the only problem with it is that God has to punish you if you break it. 
But if you understand God's law, in fact, is the design protocol upon which he constructed life to operate. So, as we've talked in here, the, the most immediate example that brings it home so nicely is the law of respiration, that we are designed to breathe. It's part of the, the physical protocol of our being. Now, you're free to break that law. And God will forgive you for it. He will not punish you for breaking that law. If you tie a plastic bag over your head, an angel from heaven will not come down and inflict harm upon you. Or the law of gravity. You just had to jump off a 400-story building. God will not send an angel to break your legs when you hit the ground. If you decide to stop brushing your teeth, the second law of thermodynamics, thing tends toward disorder. If you don't put energy into a system, it decays over time. So you stop putting energy into your oral hygiene. God will not send angels to drill holes into your teeth. When you understand, but God still loves you. And think about this as parents. Parents raise your kids to brush your teeth. If the kids grow up, go move out and say, I'm not going to brush my teeth anymore. Will you love your children less? Will you be angry at them? Will you be unforgiving and, and, and mean-spirited toward them? No, you'll love them, you'll be forgiving. But what happens to their teeth? You see, God is a forgiving God. He doesn't have to hold us in a legal sense accountable and inflict punishment upon us because his law is the law upon which life is built. And this law is uncompromising. This is one of the ways, by the way, that the devil has power over us. How does he have power over us? I'll show you. Imagine somebody holds your head underwater. Once your head is underwater, you're out of harmony with the law of respiration. Law of respiration is a design protocol. And being out of harmony over that, out with that law you're in a position that you, by force of will, cannot remedy. And if you don't get back in harmony with the law, there's going to be death that follows. When we're out of harmony in the way we live our life, with the way God built things, then we are in a pathway of self-destruction. God doesn't have to. So God be forgiving while we're still dying. Does this make sense? Yes, right here. I think the important thing to remember when you say that the law is uncompromising is that it's not uncompromising because God is stubborn or, or demanding or controlling. It's uncompromising because the law is absolute perfection. It cannot get any more perfect than God's law. That's why it's uncompromising. Yeah, did you all hear that? It's uncompromising because it can't be improved upon, and it's also the protocols by which life is built, and when you're out of harmony with it, you, I mean... And if we made any compromise, we would be settling for something less. Exactly, yes. And back to your dental analogy, who pays for the dental work when a child won't do what he's supposed to do and his teeth rot? You know, it's not, they've gotten themselves into a bad situation, but they don't have the income to do something about it. The actual result of that ends up on the parent who ends up sacrificing to put their teeth back into a rightful condition. Absolutely. That's a, well, what, another good statement. So if one of the founders of our church about a hundred and some years ago wrote the following regarding this idea of three threads of evidence. This is out of Christian Education, page 66. It says, In the study of science also we are to obtain a knowledge of the Creator. All true science is but an interpretation of the handwriting of God in the material world. Science brings from her research only fresh evidences of the wisdom and power of God. Rightly understood, both the book of nature and the written word make us acquainted with God by teaching us something of the wise and beneficent laws through which he works. And then out of another book called Education, page 130, rightly understood, both the revelations of science and experiences of life are in harmony with the testimonies of Scripture that uh, to the constant working of God in nature. So we see these three threads, rightly understood, 
will be a, a harm, and they keep us in balance. If you study science without scripture, then you're in the risk of going off into evolutionism. Scripture without science, you're in the risk of going off to these weird theories of an imposed arbitrary God who must punish you and look just like the pagans of ancient Greece. It's only when we bring them together that we can actually have balance. Sunday's lesson asks us to read Acts 16, 9 through 40. We're not going to read that. I'll just give you an overview. Paul presents the gospel to Lydia and her family, and and they accept this gospel message quite readily. Uh, Then, as they're preaching through the uh, town, um, which is Thessalonia, um, a slave with a demonic spirit who, use, who uses this demonic spirit to tell fortunes follows Paul and Silas shouting all over the city, these men bring the gospel of God, these men bring the message of salvation. All over the, wherever they go, this, 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 this medium with a demon is screaming that the gospel is being presented for salvation by these men. After evidently days of doing this, Paul gets frustrated, turns to her, casts out the demon. And then, having cast out the demon, she can't tell fortunes anymore. The owners of the slave are upset because they can't make money. So they rally the, the, the politicians and the people of the city against Paul and Silas and have them run out of the city. So a couple of questions about this. When you read the story, do you wonder, why in the world would the demon inspire the woman to follow these people around and proclaim loudly that they bring the message of salvation uh, to save people? Have you ever wondered that? Well, let's go through some possibilities. Let's go through some possibilities. Possibility, demons are notorious for telling the truth and promoting the gospel. Hmm. Probably not. Um, demons are helpless and are compelled to tell the truth in the presence of an apostle. No, that's not true. Uh-uh, okay. Uh, they were trying to discredit the work of Paul. So how many, you know, think about in Chattanooga, there's somebody with a familiar spirit, somebody, you know, palm reader downtown Chattanooga. Uh, you know, we go to have some meetings that we're going to have in October downtown, and this palm reader shows up and begins shouting outside with a big old sign, this is the message you want to hear. Come hear this message. Uh, we're going to get more people coming, people are going to turn away. It's going to interfere, Potentially. How about to distract an unsettled Paul? Imagine we're trying to talk right now and some woman's standing out there just screaming, listen to him, he's got the message. It's going to be distracting? Okay, so to discredit, to distract. And how about this? To ultimately entice Paul to cast out the demon so the owners would turn the, 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 the city against them and run him out of town. Yeah, I, I think it was strategic. I think it was trying to undermine him, trying to make him look bad, trying to distract him, and ultimately, uh, when the demon was cast out, they could turn the, the, the pagan owners against him and get him run out of the city. Yes? Again, I agree with you, it's strategic, but what about um, you know, agreeing with Paul and you know, bringing attention to their message so that when Paul and Silas leave, people are attracted to this, this slave girl and she can now present falsehood. Oh, that too. Yeah, that's too. That's, I like that. I didn't think of that one. True. If the demon isn't cast out, then you know she acts as a herald. Yeah, uh, uh, for those that believe, and maybe they'll come to her to get you know insights. Yeah, good one. Good one. Um, first paragraph says the gospel is the good news of God's mighty action in Christ that lead to forgiveness, acceptance, and transformation. Through sin, the whole world was condemned. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the whole world was given a new opportunity to have eternal life that God originally wanted for all human humanity. Uh, God's mighty work was done for us while we were still sinners. 
This work of redemption was accomplished outside of us by Jesus, and we can add nothing to it. Nothing. Yet the gospel becomes real in our lives only when we accept not only its condemnation of our sins, but God's forgiveness of those sins through Jesus. Any thoughts about this paragraph? Questions? Things in your mind you want to talk about? Is that really true, that the world was condemned? He said, is it really true that the world was condemned? He said, by who? I guess it depends on what you mean by, how do you define the word condemned? If you mean condemned in a, in a judicial manner, a judge passed condemnation, or do you mean condemned in the same way a person who just ingested Ebola virus is now condemned? I mean, what do you mean when you say condemned? I mean, it really does depend, doesn't it? Again, back to those lenses we're looking through. We're looking through the imposed law lens and condemned in a judicial way? No. We're looking through a out of harmony with God's design, a person who just jumped out of a plane at 10,000 feet without a parachute. He's condemned. <laughs> he is condemned, <laughs> right? You could say that. He's condemned to die a miserable death. Unless... Somebody intervenes. Somebody steps in, suspends the consequences, rescues him before he hits the ground. Yeah. So mankind at in Eden, when they made that decision, the metaphor I like to use is, you know, Adam and Eve is on top of the Empire State Building and the devil comes along in the form of an eagle instead of the form of a serpent and says, did God really say in the day you jump you're going to die? Oh, no, you won't. Oh, when you jump, you're going to be like God. Look at me. I'm already soaring around this planet and I'm just an animal. When you jump, you're going to soar into heaven and be like God. And so they jump. And immediately there's this exhilaration until they realize they're going only one way. And then they're overcome with fear. And at that point, God reaches his hand in and suspends them in, in midair. Romans chapter 3, God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He suspends consequence. Humanity held in the palm of God's hand as, as he is now working to put us through a window to put us back in harmony. He sends his son to the top of the building. Evil men pick his son up, throw him off the building. This time God restrains himself, does not intervene. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we watch as the son falls to his death. God didn't kill him. God didn't do anything. God didn't inflict this upon him. And we learn something about, oh, wait a minute, when you're out of harmony with the way God built life, death happens. That's why it happens. God is working to put us back in harmony. And if we trust him, he'll do that for us. He'll restore us. So, condemned, not by God, by our condition. Yeah. The lesson appears to be in the context of forgiveness of sins. behavior, yes. meaning behavior, and, and forgiveness of, of the same. Right. So the lesson gives us this kind of, not, nothing they said was absolutely wrong here, but it leans in the way it describes it to give you this feel of a judicial proceeding, behavioral pardon and forgiveness. Yes. It's important that you expand that comment just a little bit, that when Jesus dropped, jumped off the building, it, what does that show us if you're out of harmony with God? I think it's important to clarify that Jesus was not out of harmony with God, but the world was out of harmony. Yes, but Jesus was treated as if he was out of harmony by God. Yes, yes, that's true. Thank you. Uh-huh. Um, so how do you define, we're talking about this question of forgiveness. How do you define it? Is it God's personal pardon? Is it a judicial act by the ruling authority of the universe? Is it the entire process of reconciliation and restoration of unity with God? Is it transformation of the heart of the believer to be restored in the inner man? I mean, when you use this word forgiveness, you see how it can connote a lot of different things. And it really does depend on what you're 
you're describing. This is uh, written in 1891 in a book, Our High Calling. And uh, see if this sometimes lends to confusion for people. David was pardoned of his transgression because he humbled his heart before God in repentance and, and contrition of soul and believed that God's promise to forgive would be fulfilled. He, he confessed his sin, repented, and was reconverted. In the rapture of the assurance of forgiveness, he exclaimed, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. The blessing comes because of pardon. Pardon comes through faith that the sin, confessed and repented of, is borne by the great sin-bearer. Thus from Christ comes all blessing. His death is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He is the great medium through whom we receive the mercy and favor of God. In the book of Deuteronomy, it says that God speaks to prophets in visions and dreams and dark speech. But to Moses, he speaks face to face as a man speaks with a friend. And so when she says dark, she was referring to dark speech. That doesn't mean bad speech. It means symbolic speech, not obviously understood speech. Okay? So it didn't mean it was wrong. It just meant that she's suggesting, boy, that's difficult to understand. Is that correct? Thank you. Yeah. All right. Yes. In, in education or in literature, uh, there's something referred to as the straw man, you know, which is the sort of usually the commonly accepted uh, version of what people think about a certain subject. And, of course, in this, in this case, it would be the model of salvation or the judgment of God. Um, I think that there has been so much focus on the problem and on a misconceived perception of God through the straw man that we're in the situation that we're in. I think that's well said. Back to this quotation and the psalm that David said. Um, what do you think about this idea of covering up of sin or covering sin, whose sins are covered? In the Hebrew um, poetry, psalms and things, there's something called parallelism in which one verse follows the next verse and actually repeats and expands the same verse. Example, this is in Amos 5.24. But let judgment run down like let judgment run down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. You see the parallel. So judgment and righteousness are basically being equated here in this in this one. Or Psalms 19.1. The heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaim his handiwork. So his glory and his handiwork are being uh, being compared here or par- parallel. So in our Psalms 32, 1 and 2 that was quoted in that verse, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto the, whom the Lord imputes not iniquity and in whose spirit there is no guile. So do you see the parallelism? Sins forgiven parallels with the Lord not imputing iniquity. Whereas which means the Lord forgives means he doesn't hold it against somebody. So that's the parallel. The, the, blessed is the man who the Lord forgives. Blessed is the man who the Lord doesn't hold it against them. See the parallel. So then, covering would parallel with in whose spirit there is no guile. That's the parallel. Whose spirit there is no guile. This is fantastic because notice that it is not a covering up, but a cleansing such that no guile 
and the spirit of the person is found anymore. Something's changed in them. And the Hebrew translated here as cover can be translated as to keep to oneself, to not respond with knowledge, to keep information from others, though known and understood by oneself. So basically, what it's saying is that when you have that change of heart, when you are forgiven, God doesn't hold it against you. He changes you. And even though you know what you did, you don't go around continuing to make that known. Happy is the man whose sin is forgiven, whose sin isn't exposed, who, who isn't humiliated and ruined publicly, who God doesn't find fault with, and whose spirit there is no evil. This is what I think it's saying. Yes. You know, in our English language, we usually just use the word sin. But when you look at the Hebrew, there's many different words. And when you look here, transgression is another word for absolute rebellion. Something you could do, but you choose not to do it. So God says, I'll forgive you of that. The word sin simply means to miss the mark. Something that you would like to do, but you can't do it. So God runs up and he says, I'll cover that up. We won't even look at that. Do you think it makes a difference? Do you think it does? Well, let's say you're on the roof with your wife and uh, you pick her up and throw her off. Or you bend over and accidentally knock her off. Does it make a difference when she hits the ground? I think it would make a difference in the penalty that might be coming my direction or how my family... Oh, the penalty that's coming your direction. Where does the penalty arise? From where does the penalty arise? Well, if I knock my wife off or throw her off, the penalty would probably be coming from the state. Uh, so if you so is that truly the penalty? See, th- we do have in our culture this confusion because we do live in a society with imposed rules, and those imposed rules sometimes blur our ability to see the reality of God's kingdom. But let's say you actually lived in an era of a feudal lord system, and you were the lord of your of your keep, and you not accidentally knocked her off, or you picked her up and threw her off. Where's the penalty come from? Well, the penalty to her comes from the law of gravity being violated. What about the penalty to you? If you did it accidentally, there is no penalty to you. There's no evil in the heart. If you did it purposely, however, your conscience becomes seared, your reason becomes warped, your character becomes marred, you in soul and character are injured, damaged by that. You cannot perpetrate evil upon another person without being damaged in the inner man. That is an immediate consequence. Sin reacts upon the sinner and changes them to be more hard-hearted and more out of harmony with God's design. So the law of love gets damaged in your character if you do these things. It's not an infliction. And the further you go down this trail, this is what Paul means in Romans when he says they are piling up wrath for the day of wrath. What he's talking about is their characters become harder and harder and harder. And so when we commit sin and our, characters, and our conscience convicts us, we feel guilt for it, we have two options. We repent experience change of heart, so we don't want to do that anymore. We're new in the inner man. Or we deny and distort. It wasn't me. It was the woman you gave me. You didn't put her in the garden. I've never eaten that fruit. Deny, distort, blame others. If we commit evil against another person, our conscience will convict us. We will either repent, but if we don't, then we'll lie to ourselves. We'll create a falsehood in our mind, and then we'll add on top of that another evil deed and create another lie and another evil deed and another lie. This is piling up wrath for the day of wrath because our consciences and our our minds become further and further warped. So, again, I, I, uh, I like the parallelism here where the Bible says uh, whose uh, um, sins are covered in whose mouth there is no guile. 
It also reminds me of Revelation, talking about when Christ comes, those who are ready to meet him, those righteous, it says something about their mouth. In their mouth there is no guile. Same thing, which, which uh, when we put it together with the New Testament and the rest of Scripture teaching, in fact, old and new, I will take out the heart of stone, I'll put in a heart of flesh, I will write on your heart the law. Uh, we will have circumcised heart by the Holy Spirit. We'll have a new heart and right spirit. We'll, we'll be recreated in the inner man. We'll have the mind of Christ. Um, the whole teaching of Scripture isn't a covering over, as I understand it, but it's a regeneration and transformation and healing of the inner being of the man, the heart, the character. So the same author who wrote that dark passage we read a minute ago in 1891 wrote this one five years later in 1896. It says, But forgiveness has a broader meaning than many suppose. When God gives the promise that he will abundantly pardon, he adds as if the meaning of that promise exceeds all that we could comprehend. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's forgiveness is not merely a judicial act by which he sets us free from condemnation. It is not only the forgiveness for sin, but the reclaiming from sin. It is the outward flow of redeeming love that transforms the heart. David had the true conception of forgiveness when he prayed, created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from the record books in heaven. No, from us. From us. We are being changed from the motives of the heart that are self-centered, pride-filled, lust-filled, so that we actually care and love about people more than self. This is what's actually happening. And so notice forgiveness is not about covering up our sinful condition, but about removing the sinfulness from us, so there's no reason to cover anything. There's no guile in our spirit anymore. There's no evil intent. There's no desire to hurt another. There's no desire to, to, to put self first at the expense of somebody else. Then question, if that's the case, if that's really what's happening, why the language of pardon? Why the pardon language in Scripture? I'm going to tell you it's because we need, we need, because of our need, we need the assurance of his pardon because sin causes us to feel guilty and ashamed and inadequate and we doubt that anyone could ever love us or like us or care for us again. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. And notice what happened. Did they repent before God forgave or did God forgive and his gracious, humble approach to them? Who told you that you were naked? Who said that to you? You didn't hear it from me. I wasn't pointing out that to you. Where'd you get that from? You see, the question implies that God was not condemning them. It was the Romans 2.4, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. And you look at the woman caught in adultery, brought before Jesus, what happened to her? Did she repent first or did she experience forgiveness from Christ first? Neither do I condemn you, says Christ. Go and sin no more. It was the act of grace, the act of a forgiving attitude. I am not holding this against you. I know what you did, but I love you anyway. It's okay. You're okay with me. We are okay. Even though what you're doing is destroying yourself, I'm not mad at you. Go and don't destroy yourself anymore. What about the people who put Christ on the cross? Father, Punish them in hell for all eternity because they deserve the killing, the only instant life in the universe. 
Make them suffer. Is that what you hear coming off the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. They think they're killing me. They're not killing me. They're destroying their only hope of life. They're hardening their hearts and shutting me out. Forgive them. Now, were those people forgiven? Were they healed? No. You see, when you have forgiveness as a judicial act because you look at the world through an imposed law construct, what Christ does on the cross doesn't make any sense. How could he forgive them? They haven't asked for pardon yet. Nobody's paid their penalty. Something has to be done. No, when you look at it through the lens of God's design for life, yes, God's not holding it against them, but their hearts remain closed. They're hostile. They are still dying. Okay, Lisa. They are being healed and growing more like Christ and becoming more righteous, but it is his righteousness that saves. And I think that's what clarifies and confuses people is are we saved because we're so perfect now or are we saved because Jesus died and and his righteousness is our salvation? Well, the best way, of course, again, is, is the healing model. When you're sick and dying and you've got an infection and the doctor gives you an antibiotic that will cure you. Did you create the antibiotic? You didn't create it. You didn't discover it. You didn't manufacture it. Do you so have to partake of it? When you partake of it, does the antibiotic do something in you you can't do for yourself? Yes. This is exactly why Jesus said in John 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. He was not talking cannibalism. It's a metaphor. This is that dark speech again. This is symbolic. He's saying, unless you partake of my righteousness, my life, unless you internalize my character... But that character that we internalize was not developed by us. But we have to partake it. And it changes us when we do. It's very well said. Um, So, the evidence reveals that God is forgiving without any action from anyone, including Christ, to get God to forgive. But we could not be healed, restored, renewed, cleansed, reconciled, rebuilt, to unity with God without what Christ did at the cross. So the purpose of the cross was not to achieve forgiveness from God. The purpose of the cross was to achieve restoration of mankind back into unity with God. But we needed to hear the assurance that God forgives and pardons. Think about in your own life, your own human relationships, when you have really done somebody wrong that you care about. Do you really want to face them? Aren't you, isn't there some guilt and fear and shame? You don't want to look them in the eye. Isn't that true? Now magnify that between a human relationship and the relationship with God. Magnify the intensity of that feeling. And when you go to that human relationship after you've really done them wrong, you don't want to look them in the eye. What is it like to be genuinely forgiven and know they don't hold it against you? Is it healing? Do you need to hear that? Yes, you need it. Exactly right. This is why God verbalizes and tells you he pardons you so that you can know he's not holding it against you because you need that. Yes. Those words don't reflect anything that's changed on God's part. When we say God has forgiven you, what we're trying to express is you need to accept that. It needs to be a moment in time for you. It wasn't a moment in time for God because God never became hostile towards us. He never became condemning and then had to change to another position. But we understood that. And that is the moment, in essence, when it becomes our reality that God forgives us. Not because anything changed in Him, but when it becomes our reality. Did everybody hear that? Yes. No, it's well said. 
Two, let's jump to Tuesday's lesson. If we have time, we may come back to some more on Sunday and Monday. But first paragraph, since, since ancient times, readers of the Old Testament have noticed a variety of perspectives on the prophecies pointing to the Messiah. Most Jews and early Christians identified two major stands in the Messianic prophecies. On the one hand, there were the texts that pointed to a royal Messiah, a conquering king who would bring justice to the people and extend Israel's rule to the ends of the earth. On the other hand, there were the texts that suggested the Messiah would be a suffering servant, humiliated and rejected. The mistake that many made was in not understanding that all these texts were referring to the same person, just a different aspect of his work at different times. What do you think led to the elimination of the suffering texts? Could it be a misunderstanding of the problem? The desire for revenge, he said. Sure, there was a desire for revenge. I would say beneath that, though, more primary than that, was a misunderstanding of what the problem was. And, the, and, and having, again, somehow accepted an imposed law construct, behavior-based stuff, they, they misunderstood the, the nature of the problem. They misunderstood God's character, I would suggest as well. Is the problem that God was offended and needed appeasement by sacrifice, as the Greeks thought? Or, uh, and if we have that understanding, do we interpret Scripture in one way? Or if we understand that mankind is defective, out of harmony with the design for life and needs fixing, then do we see the whole interpretation of Scripture a different way? Yeah. Third paragraph, it says, Of course, a major problem that results from uh, removing the suffering servant text from the equation is that there are indeed significant Old Testament texts that blend the two major characteristics of the Messiah. They describe the same person. What a... What is less clear at first glance is whether those characteristics occur at the same time or one after the other. Do we as Christians do an any better job of incorporating a balanced view of God's character than the Jews did 2,000 years ago? Or do we present a God who is two-faced, a two-faced God? One who is not only loving, but also just. A God who returns with smiles and favor when he, and the second coming, he, oh, clouds of heaven open up, and the righteous he looks upon on his right hand with smiles and grace, but to the, to the, to the sheep on the right, but to the goats on the left, his face turns ugly. His face turns mean. His face turns hostile. His face is angry. Do we teach a two-faced God? And from where, I would say, give me some some justification for this. The Jews wanted a Messiah who would come with power 2,000 years ago to destroy their enemies. Today, the Muslims are looking for the 12th Imam, their Messiah. And the 12th Imam is to come with power to kill all the enemies of Islam. The Jews today are looking for that same Messiah to come with power as they were 2,000 years ago. And Christians are teaching... What are Christians teaching about the return of Christ? That he's coming with a a rod of iron to rule the nations and punish the wicked. Yes. So what is the difference between what the world is waiting for today and what the Jews were wanting 2,000 years ago? Did did Jesus sometime uh, in the last 2,000 years change his character? I mean, he who forgave his enemies who forgave those who put him on the cross, who taught us to turn the other cheek, who, who said, love your enemies, did he somehow change now and he's going to come back and hate and punish his enemies? I mean, think about what we're teaching. 
the lesson suggests that there is much, much confusion about the second coming. What is the second coming of Christ confused with or about, do you think? Could it be that the common teaching of the second coming and how Christ will treat the wicked fits more with the beast of revelation than with the Lamb of God? And I'm suggesting to you that the constructs that the Jews had 2,000 years ago of who God is, how he treats his enemies, were so distorted that when God came and stood among them, they hated him and they killed him. And I'm suggesting to you that the world is in the exact same place. The religious people of the world today have such a distorted view of God's character that when the evil one comes impersonating Christ, practicing methods of coercion, force, intimidation, when the beast system arrives that Revelation warns us about, most of the religious world is going to proclaim, this is our God, we have waited for him. And it is, and she says, and it is. And sadly, it's right. It is the God that they've waited for. That's exactly right. But it's not the creator God as revealed in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm suggesting to you, evaluate what Jesus revealed. How did he treat people? He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. When do you ever see him using such methods? And the reason why, see, again, it goes back to how do you understand God's law? God does not have to use his power to punish the wicked any more than a doctor has to use the, any, a, a gun to punish a smoker with lung cancer. You don't have to punish a smoker with lung cancer with a gun. You don't have to punish an alcoholic with liver failure with an electric chair. When you're out of harmony with the way life was built, it is self-terminating. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. James chapter 1. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. Why? For the same reason that applying a plastic bag over your head brings forth death. It breaks the law upon which life was built. When you understand the law properly, then you understand all this properly. But when you understand God as a Roman emperor, he sits above his creation, he imposes laws upon them, and like a Roman emperor, he must enforce his laws, then you worship a pagan God construct and you are waiting for that God to come back and punish your enemies. This is Judaism today. This is Islam. This is modern Christianity to a great degree. In the book, The Nature of the Atonement, um, Bruce Reichenbach writes the following about what Christ came to do. He says, Why is the death of the servant or physician, capital S, capital P, talking about Christ, our servant physician, the servant physician, uh, necessary. For most atonement theories, this is the heart of the problem. If God is omnipotent and merciful, why demand a route of salvation that exacts the price of the death of God's Son? Our response can be traced to the virulence, the virulence of our disease borne by the servant. What he takes, what he takes on is no trivial matter. The wages of sin are death. Death in some form, came into the world through sin. Christ voluntarily assumes this virulent position and this virulent poison so strong that it brings death, ours and his, but at the same time, not so strong that death can permanently hold the physician. The death is in the sin. Our sin, not God, kills the physician. God's part 
is in mercy to send his servant physician to heal and then to restore him to life and power. Isn't that well said? Yes, this is exactly what God sent Christ to do, to take our terminal state upon himself in order to fix and heal what was broken in mankind after Adam sinned. Questions about any of this? Isn't there a sociological aspect to this whole thing in the sense that um, people develop these ideas and then the next thing you know, they start to codify and then they start to make a cult and then a culture and then a civilization. (laughs) I like what he said. Did you hear what he said? They codify and they start to make a cult and then a culture. (laughs) I really like that. That was well well said. (laughs) Isn't it the truth? (laughs) Make a cult and then a culture. Very nicely said. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, in, in closing, I'll just jump to Wednesday's lesson for a point, and it talks about suffering before glory. And we don't have time to read all the, all the references I have in the, in the notes, but you can check those out in the notes. Uh, they'll be online. Um, but it talks about suffering before glory, and I just asked the question, what do you think it means, suffer before glory? Examples, other than Jesus. Do Olympic gold medal winners suffer before they have glory? Do Nobel Prize winners suffer before their prize? Do great artists ever suffer before the production of a masterpiece? In fact, great artists will tell you it's often the suffering of life that inspires the great work. Um, Individual character development and victory in your life, is there any suffering before the victory? All says count it all joy. Count it all joy, yes. Do women have to suffer? Before they hold that little one in their arms. She said women have to suffer before they hold that little one in the arms unless they have anesthesia and a C-section, right? <laughs> but I, I, I got her. She still suffered. Yeah, I got what you mean. Women have to suffer. But some women say they suffer more after they hold the little one in their arms. <laughs> I guess it depends on the little one, huh? <laughs> no, I, that's exactly right, though. And, and this is the point. A uh, cancer patient who goes through treatment and goes into remission will suffer terribly in the treatment before the cancer's in remission. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Without what Christ did for us, we can't be remitted back, restored back to our original design. And we, as we partake the remedy, there is a suffering as we die to that old self-centered way, as we forgive people who don't ask for forgiveness because we want to remove from our hearts bitterness and resentment and anger. Sometimes there's a suffering wrestling through to let that go. But if we process and do that, then there's glory to come. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth that you've revealed to us, that you are an intelligent, reasonable, loving being, selfless and gracious, who has provided us overwhelming evidence in in your word, in nature, through the experiences of life, Uh, Give us the ability to piece these threads together, to have good discernment, to have wisdom, to have good judgment, to be able to make balanced and appropriate decisions. Give us a heart of compassion and love for others. uh, Help us experience that renewed inner being that we will come to love you and others more than self. We pray in your holy name. Amen.